Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 6, 15 through 7, 4. So the wall was finished on the 20th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all nations around us were afraid and felt greatly in their own esteem. For they, perche- they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while we are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint the guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we begin this morning's text with the unspectacular announcements of the Completion of the wall. I say unspectacular because the wall has been the focal point of the book so far. Um, Think about it. Uh, What has already happened? The drama around the rebuilding of this wall. The story begins with Nehemiah risking his life within the context of uncertainty. He's coming before the Persian king Um, He's breaking protocol, he's bringing his personal concerns before the king, and he's uncertain just exactly how the king is going to respond to him. Well, the king responds well, but then he's got the uncertainty of how the king is going to actually answer his request to go to Jerusalem, and so uh, he's going to have to vacate his important post as the king's uh, trusted advisor, so There's uncertainty, uncertainty as he comes before his, if you will, his employer. There was much to fear at that moment. But then after that favorable response uh, of of Nehemiah's request to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, there was the predictability of the enemies of God's people and how they were going to respond, and that is not well. And so... Um, We come to chapter 2, verse 10, and sure enough, it says there, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So there was much much to fear in how that displeasure was going to be played out in the coming days. 
And then there was the condition of the walls themselves. Uh, Nehemiah had four months of camel time to wonder what he had gotten himself into. The only information that he actually had was what his brother had told him about the walls, and so he had to piece together a kind of a mental image of the state of the walls. Were they worse than I had imagined? Or maybe he was thinking, I wonder how the morale is of the people who and whom are going to be doing the heavy labor for the walls, or he might be wondering, would he be able to motivate these people? There was much to be feared. Well, then there was the condition of the walls. Uh, he arrives and surreptitiously he inspects the walls. Nehemiah sees the reality of the work. And then he also faces the reality of the enemy. The enemies actually have names. We've got Sambalets and Tobiah and Geshem who are representatives of the nations that are surrounding Judea and surrounding Jerusalem. And so we read words in relationship to them, uh, angry and greatly enraged, tactics like scoffing and jeering and plotting and threatening. There was much to fear. And if that wasn't enough, Nehemiah had to face the unexpected opposition and enemy within the people of God, unprincipled men, men who loved their position and prosperity over the people of God, so that even last week we saw that there was a real threat of conspiracy, uh, conspiracy to kill Nehemiah, there was much to fear. So that's a, lot of a, that's a lot of drama. That's a lot of drama around rebuilding the walls. You would think that there might be a bit of fanfare when the wall is completed, but no, we just simply get, so the wall is finished. And then a little date and time frame in 52 days. But perhaps the fanfare is there. Perhaps it comes from the most unlikely of sources found there in verse 16, and that is the enemies of God. Verse 16, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God's enemies got it. They perceived this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Well, we're going to go back to verse 16 at the end of this message, but to get there, what I want to do is I want to begin by stating uh, what I think we can learn, something that we can learn from our passage this morning, and it's this. The antidote to fear is fear. The antidote to fear is fear. Now, let's start by talking about fear. There, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of reasons to fear, and I'm going to give you a few, a few here. But before we get there, you may be even already pushing back in your own minds, because you know that Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will surpass all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Be anxious for nothing. 
All right, we also know what Jesus said when he was there on the, on the uh, Mount of the, the Sermon on the Mount when, when he says, be anxious for nothing. And then he goes on and describes and talks about all that Solomon had had, and yet it wasn't as glorious as what God could provide. And so he says, be anxious for nothing. Do not, be, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. <laughs> um, we know that. And yet both of these seem to be saying that it's not so much about the fact that there is fear, but what we do with that fear. In other words, does that fear rule us? Does that fear occupy the space in our mind? Because there are things that are reasonable to fear. The question is, what do we do with that fear? And so let me give you, let me give you some things to fear <laughs> this morning. In a fallen world, first, there are a lot of things to fear. In a fallen world, there are just a lot of things to fear. In a fallen world, uh, that sin-broken world that does not operate as God intended, there's a lot to fear. And so whether it's the weeds that kind of tangle your garden or the violence that makes the inner city dangerous or the corruption of politicians or the death of a loved one, there are plenty of reminders all around you that the world in which we live is broken. Like sirens. <laughs> Life is unpredictable. It's a dangerous place. There's unforeseen, difficult things that do happen. And salvation doesn't automatically get us a ticket out of the fallenness of our surroundings, the downturn of the economy, the adultery of a spouse, unexpected physical sickness, or some other trial. You will feel, you will feel and face hardships. Because of this, it is foolish to live in a fallen world and not be afraid in a responsible way of what that means to live in that world. See, biblical faith does not require us to simply ignore the realities around us. There are things that should concern and sober us. There are things that should cause us to grieve. There are things that we will be called to deal with quickly and decisively because of their potential danger, there are moments when fear of what could be is a spiritually healthy thing. But what we must guard ourselves against is being ruled by that fear, being occupied by that fear, being taken over by that fear. See, Psalm 37 verse 8 says it so very simply to us. It says, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. If we allow ourselves to be ruled by fear, we will trouble our own trouble. We will end up making bad things worse. The decisions we make in the panic of fear are the ones that we end up regretting. In a fallen world, there are a lot of things to fear. Well, second thing is kind of a subset of that first, and that is that in relationships with flawed people, there are reasons to fear. In relationships with flawed people, there are, there are reasons to fear. Uh, everyone you work with and work to uh, is a flawed human being. Many are in need of redemption. And those who are redeemed, positionally those who are saints, are still in process of being practically a saint. No one around us has a completely pure heart. No one is totally free 
of sinful thoughts and desires, cravings of of motives. No one always says the right things. No one always makes the right choices. No one is always noble in their intentions. No one is free from the act of selfishness or self-promotion. No one is completely loyal. No one always has your back. Or as one friend said to me this past week, no one bats a thousand. Think about Nehemiah. Uh, It was difficult to know exactly who to trust. See, we look at verses 17 through 19, and when you first read that or hear that read to you, it seems a little bit out of place. It seems like this should have been before the walls were completed, but actually they're not. Look at verses 17 through 19. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Erah, and his son Jehoanan had taken the daughters of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. It begins with this phrase, moreover in those days. Well, what days? Well, it's the days after the wall has been completed. See, the reason it is here where the walls are finished and the gates have been secured and placed up is that the nobles of Judah now had to figure out how to live in the new normal. Uh, If you have been with us in Nehemiah, you know the nobles haven't exactly been noble. Um, the first time we have them introduced to us, uh, they're introduced in chapter 3 at, at verse 5. And it's there where we have the kind of the everyday man of the Tekoa Heights. These are from Tekoa. Uh, they are working on the wall. But then look at the second part of Nehemiah 3. It says there, their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. They were above such menial labor. Then... You come to chapter 5 and verse 7. We read these words, Nehemiah uh, speaking. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against, against them. See, what Nehemiah was doing is he was castigating uh, them for their greedy practice of charging exorbitant interest. And so the, now we come to our passage, and what we discover is that the nobles were in a contractual relationship with Tobiah. Tobiah, the outspoken enemy of God. In relationships with flawed people, There are reasons to fear. Consider Tobiah. Tobiah was a fellow Jew. He was a Jew serving the Persian king in Ammon. He was the governor of a province. He had a political uh, political office with power and influence and means of wealth. And that was all at stake here. Tobiah is a Jewish name. It means God is good. He named his son, see verse 18 there, Jehohanah, which means Yahweh has shown mercy. He, He was a figure of influence in Judah. 
And so the reason the nobles were corresponding with Tobiah is found there in verse 18. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. And it's believed that these oaths that he, they were binding, these binding agreements, that they were trading contracts facilitated by marriage connections. So we look at that next phrase. That's why we have these details, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and a reference to his father-in-law, Shechaniah. And his son, Jehonanan, had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. These are marriage agreements with economic implications. And these nobles economic lives were entangled with the enemy of God, Tobiah. Thus, with such links and loyalties, the nobles attempted to influence Nehemiah by highlighting Tobiah's good deeds. We see that in verse 19. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence. These nobles served also as leaky information Individuals, they leaked information back to Tobiah. Look at the second phrase, and they reported my words to him. Uh, these nobles served as a compromise go betweens. They were compromised by their dependence upon Tobiah for their status within the Jewish community. When Nehemiah would not capitulate to Tobiah, they became the conduit for Tobiah to threaten Nehemiah. So we see that last phrase there in verse 19, which simply says this, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. See, relationships in the body of Christ are messy and unpredictable. They are the places where we experience some of our most gratifying joys, and heart-wrenching pains. It is godly and responsible to be afraid of how sin can create power struggles and divisive ally groups, critical and judgmental attitudes, self-centered complaining, disloyalty, and ultimately division. In relationships with people, there are reasons to fear. Number three, reasons to fear. In a world at enmity with God, there are reasons to fear. This past week, I was reflecting upon God's words to those three who were present at the day of the fall. It was the serpent, the woman, and the man in that order. Listen to what God has said to Satan, the instrument being a serpent. God said to him, because you have done this, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. What God is referring to here is that through Eve's fruitfulness and every woman after her of having children, there would be a godly offspring in the plural, those in whom God would call out to himself out of their sinful, rebellious states, 
but that there would also be another offspring, an ungodly offspring, who would reject God's call and remain in their sinful, rebellious state, and that throughout humanity, then, throughout human history, these two would be at odds with one another. And it only took one generation for this to play itself out. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Which is why, turning your Bibles to John 8, which is why Jesus says this to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, beginning at verse 38. He says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, well, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. A man who told you the truth that I had heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Look at this, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Enmity. The reality is that from the fall we are born in a sinful, rebellious state, but that God graciously calls out a people to himself. But within that blessing there are the equal reality that there are those who still in their sinful, rebellious state and thus they are at odds and in enmity with God's people. And so we see that reality in our passage. What does Nehemiah do after the physical work has been completed? Look at verses one and two of chapter seven. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. See, Nehemiah, he appoints two co-leaders, two chief operating officers, if you will, Hananiah, Hananiah and Hananiah. And Hananiah is the civic leader, and he could really be likened uh, to a mayor. And we have Hananiah, who was uh, in the military, and he was a military leader, and he was equivalent to what we'd call the chief of police. Now, why would he do this? Because while the work of securing the city through the building of the walls and the hanging of gates is complete, there is more work to be done. 
God has put on Nehemiah's heart a vision of restoring the reputation of God through restoring and reviving the people of God of which Jerusalem is the spiritual and the cultural capital. And he's doing it surrounded by provinces, small nation states who hate them. Sworn enemies of God. And thus not only does he appoint two leaders, but then he gives them these specific instructions. Verse 3, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. In a world at enmity with God's people, there are reasons to fear. So in a city where there are few inhabitants... See, we see that there, verse 4, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt with few inhabitants and thus few defenders. He says to them, he says, appoint defenders. Place them at strategic places within the city itself and place some of them right in front of their house because that will really motivate them to protect their place. (laughs) See, there are a lot of reasons to reasonably fear but we're not to be ruled by that fear. Let me give you one more to consider. I. I, being a part of this fallen world, have a lot of reasons to fear. Stating the obvious, I was conceived in a sinful, rebellious state. Psalm 51, verse 5, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And then David, as he's kind of scoping out his own heart, he writes the next stanza. He says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Now remember when David is writing this, he's writing this within uh, the context of the fact that he's called out by God, that he is one of God's, but as he's looking into his own heart, he's recognizing the original state of himself. He realizes he's been called out of that. He's a a man of God, and yet he knows that God delights in truth in his inward being. So it's just not outward, outward morality that God delights in, but in a love of truth in the inner man. In other words, God looks at the heart, at the love of the hearts, and any reasonable human being, if he or she scopes out her own heart, his, her own heart, knows that while they may be outwardly true, their motives many times are untrue. And then David is even harder on himself, for he writes, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And yet David knows that rather than taking the place of privilege, a place of privilege we have here today to hear the word of God, rather than taking that place of privilege, he casts that aside, he runs after the lust of his flesh, he uses his position of power, takes a woman who is not his wife, attempts to deceive, to cover his sin, and when that doesn't work, uses his unquestioned authority to have her husband killed a loyal soldier to the cause of God's kingdom killed on the battlefield we have a lot of reasons to fear our own sinfulness and if it's not our sinfulness it's our own weaknesses and inadequacies in enneagram parlance This is the non-resourceful side of your number. (laughs) Let me give you a few. 
I'm just going to go with the even numbers. If you are a two in your non-resourceful side, you will be smothering, demand... <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> Found a two out there. <laughs> smothering, demanding, complaining, needy, codependence. If you are a four, you are moody, snobbish, possessive, feel misunderstood, exaggerated sensitivity. If you are a six like me, in my non-resourceful side, I am dogmatic, I'm a worrier, I'm rigid, I'm a worst-case scenario thinker, I'm paranoid. If you are an eight, you are demanding, gruff, bullying, con confrontational, insensitive macho, and emotional bull own weaknesses or inadequacies give us reason to fear. Think about your various callings. What has God called you to? I, I remember the first thoughts Tamara and I had when we brought home our oldest son, Zachariah, from the hospital. 48 hours, you know, into life, into at least out of the womb. And I don't remember between the two of us who said it, but one of us said, as we're in the apartment looking at this baby, and we're thinking, what were they thinking? Letting us bring him home. We have no idea what we're doing. Fear. Reasonable fear. And since then, there have been the same kind of fear of being a parent, but just it changes, and over time, there is a reasonable fear of being a parent. Or perhaps you as an employee, employee have a fear. You fear whether or not you can rise up, that you can rise up to the expectations. They don't know it, but you have a fear. You may not be able to rise up to the tasks. Think about all the callings that everybody has here, and we begin to contemplate those moments, and we wonder if we can really be what we should be. We have a lot of reason to fear. Now, how are we going to be, how are we not going to be ruled by fear? What's the antidote? Well, the antidote to fear is fear. I've given a lot of time or space to this first fear of that sentence, but let's now turn our attention to the second fear, a particular fear in that sentence. See, it was the beginning of 445 B.C., the 25th day of the month of Elul, of which we find the rebuilding of the wall was done in 52 days. And that was a remarkable accomplishment. So remarkable that the modern mind, that many in the modern mind, that many modern commentators do not believe that it was really 52 days. They would rather go to an extra biblical source, the source namely Jewish, the Jewish historian Josephus, where his time frame said, oh no, it took at least two years even though there are some serious scribal concerns with his particular document. Our, our modern mind can't get our head around this, but for the ancient mind and the spirit-authored words found here, it is believable and, in fact, reasonable to the enemy of God when God is involved. It 
it was a remarkable feat for a number of reasons. First, the size of the project is estimated at a minimum of one and a half miles to two and a half miles long. Secondly, the challenge of the work was extraordinary. Much of the rubble was found at the bottom of two ravines of which we're going to have to bring brought up all that rubble, brought up the, the raw resources. A lot of hard labor was required to lift the stones up the ridges. Three, as already mentioned, the surrounding nations were less than thrilled to see the work accomplished, as I mentioned in my introduction. Thus, they threatened to spread false rumors uh, of rebellion back to the capital of Persia. They threatened physical force. They used mockery to discourage the work. The enemies attempted to distract Nehemiah from leadership with the aim to destroy his life. Fourthly, a remarkable feat, there was a complacency among the people of God, particularly those who had influence, the nobles. Fifthly, they were in an economic downturn caused by famine that forced the common man to go to drastic measures to make ends meet. Sixthly, related to the fifth, the rich were taking advantage of the downturn to exact high prices upon those, a moral failure by the people of God. It was a remarkable feat. So that verse 16, the author writes, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Two notable changes occurred in God's enemies. First, they became afraid. Those who were attempting to incite fear were now afraid. And secondly, they fell greatly in their own esteem. Now, the word esteem is an interesting translation, interesting word for for it is the translation from the common Hebrew word, It is the common Hebrew word for the physical eye. So the translator is saying, no, we're not going to translate it physical eye, we're going to translate it esteem. And you can see why. See, here it is used of the mental state or that mind's eye. And this is helpful for us. It's that mental space, probably that most important time of our day that we have, of which we have no distractions or very little significant distractions. And those those come at the most surprising times. Yesterday, Tamara and I were driving. Um, we, we, we live in northwest Davenport, and so I-80 is our main street. It's just easier to go to I-80. We're right real, real near it. We just go down I-80, and then I-74, and then we go wherever we need to go within the Quad Cities. And so yesterday, we were going east on I-80. We were probably maybe a quarter mile off of the, um, onto the you know, exit and then onto I-80, and we're going down. It's quiet in the car, and I turn to my wife, and I say to her, what are you thinking about? And she goes, what do you mean? What do you mean, what am I thinking about? You mean all the things I'm thinking about? <laughs> yeah, it's that space. It's that space and time that as you're driving along, you go through that intersection uh, through, with, you know, with, the, with the stoplight, go through that intersection, you have no idea whether or not it was actually green. <laughs> it, it's that space and time when you're walking from your car and you're going into the grocery store. It's that space and time when you're woken up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden you're awakened you've got some space. It's that space and time when you're waiting in some line, and maybe it's that space and time that you have actually set aside to be quiet. We call that quiet time. It's in that space and time in which 
we are creating a mental picture, our mind's eye of our perception of reality is being formed. And two questions we need to ask in that space is, who occupies that space? And what occupies that space? For Sambalitz and Tobiah and Geshem, 52 days earlier, they loomed large in that space. And Nehemiah's God was small. 52 days, 52 days later, they perceived, pick that word up, they perceived, their perception has changed that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God had become very large, and it caused them to be small, and as a result, to be afraid. Now, uh, afraid because they realize that they are, Tobiah particularly realizes that he is a part, He's got the name of God, that God is good, and he realizes that he is running contrary to the very God of himself. So we're not talking about this kind of fear here in terms of what will be the antidote. He only has the fear that God's judgment is upon him. So the fear of God produces that kind of fear in the enemy of God. But for the antidote, for the people of God, it's similar, but a little bit different. The antidote for the people of God, for their fear, is the fear of God. God. Faith in God doesn't ask us to deny the reality of our fearful situations. Rather, faith in God puts perspective to those fears. So what did Nehemiah do knowing that there is a world at enmity with God's people? He looked out on all the possible candidates that he could place into a position of leadership. And look what he does in, in chapter 7, verse 2. He, he identifies Hananiah as one who is, a more, is more faithful and a what? A God-fearing man. Than many. God loomed large in those quiet spaces of his life. So, for the people of God, the antidote to fear is the fear of God. So, in the last few minutes, let's consider the fear of God. And rather than finding it, rather than defining it, let's experience it at the cross. See, the fear of God grows at the cross, and the foundation of that fear is forgiveness with God. And this cannot be more clearly stated than in Psalm 130. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 130. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities O Lord, so we have a change now. We have a change in name. Yahweh, the, the covenant-making God, should mark iniquities, O Lord. This is now referencing to the fact that he is the king of kings. He is the Lord. He is Adonai. Who could stand? And the answer to that question is what? No one. No one could stand. No one. Because everyone is an enemy of God in our sins. Tobiah, whose name was to honor him, knew that this is where he stood. I deserve God's judgments. I cannot stand greatly feared. 
But with you, there is forgiveness. For what purpose? That you may be feared. See, this is godly fear right here, that as we contemplate, as we, we think about what God has done for us, it causes us to realize that what I should, I do deserve God's judgment, his wrath upon my sins, that I am an enemy of God, that rather than that, because of what has happened upon the cross, I am one who can, instead of being judged, is one who is forgiven by what Christ has done for me there. That's the fear of God. At the very beginning, I will say this. Uh, I told a group beforehand I wouldn't, but I will. I think it's important that when Nehemiah in chapter 1, as he's t- he finds out about the walls and the condition of Jerusalem and those walls, he starts to pray, and it says he, everybody that prayed with him are those who delighted in the fear of God. There's a delight in the fear of God. So this word esteemed isn't used very often or isn't translated very often, only a couple times. And I want you to turn to, I didn't give the screen, uh, it's not going to be on the screen here, but I want you to go to Isaiah 53 because this is where it's found twice. I think it's only like five times in all of scripture that's actually, or all of the Old Testament, it's translated esteemed and it's used twice here. And so let me just walk us through Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of, the, of Yahweh been revealed? For he, thinking about the Messiah here, for he grew up before him, the father, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He, this, this one who's identified as the Messiah, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Matter of fact, look verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He'd been through a lot of sorrow, a lot of grief, a lot of things we fear. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And look there. We esteemed him not. Our perception of the reality of this individual is, eh, he's not worth anything. See, see, that was our state. That was our state in, in this life. That is how we saw Jesus. Eh, we despised him. We did not esteem him. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, look there again. We esteemed him. We perceived. Our, our reality of perception was that he was stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. It wasn't for me, it was for his own problems. No, verse 5. But here's the reality. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, here's our state. Here's our condition All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. 
And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and in judgment, he was taken away. They judged him. And as for his generations, his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his, in his mouth. Our mouths, they betray us. They betray our sinfulness. A poorly stated word. But that never happened with Jesus. A lie, a half-truth, that never happened. Yet, verse 10, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, when the Messiah's soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hands. Out of the sacrifice, prosperity. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, what we need to have occupy that space of our realistic fears is the good news of Jesus Christ. So we face our fears, face your fears with a meditation on the cross. And I don't mean that, you know, yeah, Jesus died for me on the cross kind of thing. No, I'm talking about think through, consider all that Jesus did. He did not account equality with, thing, with God to be a thing to be grasped onto, but rather he set aside his rights as divine and he became a man, and he entered in as a servant of us, and he lived a life of fears. There was fears all around him. He lived a life of fears with never being anxious because he never allowed those fears to rule his life. He was tempted in all ways and yet without sin, so that when he went to the cross, he did it in such a way that he was obedient to the will of the Father, and the Father said, you must go to the cross and suffer on my behalf. Must I do that? Yes, your will, not my will, Father. And he went to the cross and died for our sins on the cross, as he was being mocked and jeered by us so that you could be forgiven. By trusting in him. So face your realistic fears with that reality. Perceive them differently in the fear of God. See, if you are here and you're like Tobiah and you know that you have sin and it's ugly, face that fear and recognize that Christ died for it and fear God and trust in his son as your Lord and Savior. That's what it means to fear God. And believer, for us, it means to rejoice in the fear of God, rejoice in the cross. So let me end with these words, God's word that speak, that should speak to our soul. So if you need to close your eyes, if that would be helpful, I've got the passage up there. But as you're thinking about those fears, as you have that space, this is what God says to us. 
What then shall we say to these things, these fears? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, thank you. Grow our delight in the fear of you. Father, we pray that as we go into this week with all of those unexpected moments of time, spaces where those fears come back, real fears, Father, our prayer is that you would rule those fears. That we would again be reminded that Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords, and he sits on a throne of grace that that grace that has been poured upon on us in our salvation is one that will be ours in our fears. Father, we thank you. The night that your son was betrayed, he gave us this supper. We thank you that as he took the bread, he broke it and gave it to his followers. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Father, as we take it this morning, we're again reminded again of the grace that is found that Jesus Christ took our sins in his body and died for them. Father, he took that cup and he poured it and gave it to his followers and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So Father, as we take it, we're reminded again that Jesus Christ gave his life. Life is in the blood. Shed his blood for our sins that we might be whole again. We thank you and praise you. As you see in Christ's name.